0: Welcome to week six in our study on the doctrines of grace. Um, Today we come to the third of them, uh, the L in TULIP, uh, which stands for limited atonement. Uh, Previously, we've looked at total depravity, which says that due to original sin, we're born without the ability to do any spiritual good because our corruption extends to every part of us. Uh, And one of the key implications of that is that we are totally unwilling and unable in and of ourselves to choose to come to Christ. Uh, So it's like if you see someone drowning in the ocean and you throw them a buoy and you cry out, grab on and be rescued, and then you realize they've already drowned. Uh, Well, that's what we're like in our sin. When the gospel is offered to us and we're told to believe in Christ and receive salvation, the problem is we're spiritually dead and unresponsive. Uh, So God must first do a miracle to enable us to respond in faith. He must give us new life. Uh, And that means it's not that we first choose God, but he first chooses us. Uh, And then that led into the second point, the U in Tulip Unconditional Election, which teaches that God chooses us for salvation before the foundation of the world, Uh, not because we would have chosen him or because of anything else good in us, but for God's own purposes and glory. Uh, And if God's the one who chooses us, even before the foundation of the world, well, then that has some implications for how we think about the work of Christ and what exactly his atoning work was meant to accomplish. And that's what brings us tonight to the L, limited atonement. And and the plan is to spend the next uh, two weeks uh, wrestling with this, Uh, And I want to begin today by just trying to frame the debate and clarifying what the doctrine of limited atonement is, and then we're going to look at some biblical support for it. So uh, to frame the debate, I I want to just cut right to the heart of the issue, and here's really the key question uh, when we come to this, what limited atonement is trying to answer, and it's this, was the atonement intended to make salvation possible for everyone or certain for the elect, right? Did, Did Jesus come and die so that possibly everybody could be saved, you know, if everybody chose to believe, but also possibly nobody could have been saved if no one had chosen to believe? Or did Jesus die to ensure the salvation of a particular group of people namely the elect. Or uh, to to approach this same question from a different angle, uh, in the case of those who go to hell, did Jesus die for them? And if so, why do they still go to hell? What is it that makes Jesus' work insufficient to save them? Uh, And if you say, well, it's because they didn't have faith, well, did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief or not? And, and is it our faith that gives the cross its power? Um, or is faith itself part of the gift of salvation that was earned and achieved by Jesus at the cross? Uh, and, and as you can see by the definition I provided in your notes, uh, limited atonement argues for the latter. Uh, it says, Jesus' atoning work fully secured the salvation of the elect. He, he didn't die trying to make salvation possible for everyone, but actual and certain for the elect. And that's because he didn't die just hoping that some would choose to believe, but knowing that his death for his people would guarantee that the Spirit would then regenerate their hearts and give them faith as a gift so that they might fully receive that salvation that he accomplished at the cross. Uh, So the Father elects, the Son atones, and then the Spirit applies. God works in perfect harmony from beginning to end to save a people for himself. Uh, that, that's, that's the reformed view of limited atonement. Uh, now, two further clarifications about that. Uh, first, uh, limited atonement is, is just an unhelpful name. Uh, I mean, first of all, limited just sounds very negative. You know, who, who wants to put limits on Christ's work? Uh, but, but the reality is everyone who believes in hell limits the atonement. Right? The, the only way to have a fully unlimited view of the atonement is to be a universalist uh, and thereby also a heretic. Uh, but since there is a hell and some people will go there, it cannot be true that Jesus' atoning work actually saves everybody. And therefore, it also cannot be true that Jesus went to the cross trying to actually save everybody, because if he did, then he failed, and God doesn't fail. So, so the question is, what was Jesus trying to accomplish? What, what mission did God the Father send him into the world to achieve? And you either have to say that Jesus was trying to do something for everyone, but that something stopped short of actually accomplishing and guaranteeing their salvation or you have to say that Jesus was trying to actually save people but he wasn't trying to actually save everyone right so the atonement has to be limited either in scope or in effectiveness the, the reform view limits the scope it says Jesus was only trying to save some but the effectiveness of that work for those he was trying to save is unlimited He fully accomplishes salvation um, for them. The Arminian view limits the effectiveness. It says Jesus died for everyone, so the scope is unlimited, but something additional is required to make Jesus' work effective. Jesus' death on the cross for everyone only makes salvation possible for them. It doesn't fully accomplish and guarantee it. So, in light of that, the question really isn't is the atonement limited or unlimited? Uh, the question is, in which way is it limited? Uh, and is it scope or is it in effectiveness? And, and that's why instead of calling the Reform view limited atonement, uh, many have preferred to call it definite atonement or particular redemption um, because it's emphasizing that Jesus died to save a definite or particular group. Okay, so that's that's the first clarification just about the name. Uh, now the second clarification I want to make is that th- this limitation in the scope of Christ's work has to do with intent, not saving merit. Okay, so when we say that Jesus only died for some, we're not saying that Jesus only paid enough to cover the sins of some people, uh, as if there's not enough meritorious value in Christ's work. To save others, right? As as, as if the the merit of what Jesus, uh, the salvific merit of his work is insufficient. Um, Sometimes people get the idea that, like, when Jesus is on the cross, uh, you know, he he had to suffer that extra lash of the whip because of that really bad sin that you or I committed. Or, or, you know, that uh, Jesus had to suffer like an extra millisecond for every extra elect person that he was going to save. Um, and, and I think one of the problems that that can lead to is, you know, people start saying, well, well then how do you even offer the gospel to the non-elect? Right? I mean, if, if, if there's not enough saving merit in the cross for them, if Jesus would have had to suffer more to pay for their sins, well, well then even if they repented and believed, how could they be saved? And so it can start to feel like sort of an insincere offer. Um, But I think at least one of the things that's helpful to say in response to that is that, no, 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 there's no limit to the saving merit of Christ's work. Uh, It's not like when Jesus went to the cross, he only bore a finite amount of punishment to atone for a limited number of sins. No, the punishment for even one sin against an infinitely holy God is, is an infinite punishment. I think it's part of why hell is forever. Uh, so when Christ goes to to bear the punishment, he he bears an infinite punishment that was sufficient to satisfy God's justice for any number of sins. You know, and, and and the length of time and the exact specifics of all that he suffered. Well, that that's you know he and his father have arranged that. But but I don't think it's right to think that that has to sort of correspond in some numerical way to A specific number of people or number of sins. And then further, when when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, he offered a sacrifice of infinite worth. Because he offered up himself. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the infinitely precious and holy son of God. Right, right, So the, the atoning merit, the, the intrinsic value of Christ's sacrifice is unlimited. Uh, to, to loosely quote John Owen, uh, he said something effective. By, by the, the very same sacrifice, what, what Christ did on the cross, he could have saved not only everyone who's ever existed, but a thousand worlds besides. Right? There's no limit to the intrinsic merit. But the question is, Who was this infinitely meritorious sacrifice intended for? It's really a question of intent. Who was he intending to lay down his life for? Whose sins were being thought of as credited to his account that that he was suffering for? Um, and, And what was he intending to accomplish by dying for those people? Um, I, I couldn't think of a great analogy, but but there's at least a slight parallel. If you if you think you know, say you were jailed for a debt you couldn't pay, uh, you know I went to the courthouse and gave them you know some diamond that was the equivalent of the Hope Diamond, you know, worth this huge sum, and and thereby said you know I want this to cover to pay your debt, and so you'd be set free. Now, what about all the other debtors? Would they all be sort of set free as well? I mean, that one diamond would, would be enough to pay all the debts. But it does them no good if it wasn't intended for them. Right? If, I, if I didn't give it for them, I'm not paying their debts. It, it comes back to who was Jesus dying for? What, what was he intending to accomplish in laying down his life for sinners? Which sinners? And And what was the intention in terms of, the effect of this? What was the arrangement, the design of the atonement in the mind of God? And limited atonement says that Jesus died for the elect, for those God unconditionally chose from before the foundation of the world, and he died in order to do everything necessary to ensure, to accomplish, to procure their salvation, uh, to secure it. Now, because Matt gave me a little extra time. I'm going to pause there just to open for any questions just about what limited atonement is. James. Well, I actually, I'm just going to ask you, if you clarify some of the other terms that might be used for limited atonement. Particular redemption or definite atonement. Yeah, so so just the idea being it, he he's, Jesus is offering himself, not just for sort of a nebulous, undefined group of people, but a definite group of people, a particular people that he is intending to redeem by offering himself. Yeah. All right, well, Let, let's go on now to um, think about some biblical support. So where, where do we see this in scripture? And um, in the interest of time, I, I just want to briefly look at three passages from the gospel of John. I think it'd be helpful if you open up a Bible to, to follow along here. And as we look at these three passages, I want you to be asking the question what was Jesus' mission in coming into the world? What was Jesus intending to accomplish by dying on the cross? So, first, uh, picking up in John chapter 6 and verses 35 through 39. John 6. and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Okay, so this says, Jesus came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but his father's. And what was his father's will? What, what mission did the father give him? Well, verse 39 says, that of all the father gave to me, I should lose nothing, not even one of them. But raise them up on the last day. Uh, and, and, and the Greek is, is a little funny there, but uh, I do think this is best translated not as raise it up, but raise them up. Uh, to be consistent with the verse 37 where you see it's, it's not that the Father is just giving things to Jesus. He's, he's giving him a people, all of whom will come to him. And so Jesus is saying on the last day, that is judgment day, I am going to raise up every last one of them. You know, they're not going to be condemned and thrown into hell, but they will be lifted up to be accepted before God. And, and who are these that Jesus says were given to him by the Father? Uh, well, it, it's the elect. As, as we just studied unconditional election, they're, they're those that the Father chose from before the foundation of the world. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is that the Father gave this people to him uh, and sent him into the world with the mission of saving them. And that he is going to ensure that not a single one will be lost. Okay, so again, that the argument here is uh, Jesus' mission wasn't just to come and make salvation possible for some nebulous group, but it was to make salvation actual, to actually save every one of those his father gave to him. Uh, now jump ahead to John chapter 10. Uh, and, and here Jesus is talking about how he is the good shepherd uh, who lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? So Jesus is the shepherd. He has his own. He has his own flock, his own sheep, and he lays down his life for the sheep. Well, okay, who who exactly are these sheep? Well, if you keep reading, look down at verse 16. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, so there's this fold. I think that's Jesus' disciples. And then there's... Other sheep, not of this fold, which, which I think probably especially refers to Gentiles. Uh, and Jesus is saying, you know, they're going to believe the gospel and they're going to be gathered in and all be part of this one flock, his one church. But then as you keep reading, uh, jumping down to verse 24, notice that Jesus talks about others who aren't of his sheep. So in verse 24, some of the Jews challenge Jesus, saying, Well, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Okay, so we've already seen Jesus says, I laid down my life for the sheep. And now here he makes clear not everyone is a sheep. And then what makes this even more striking is the causal language. Because you might start to think, well, well, maybe what Jesus means is we become a sheep when we believe. You know, and and, and so he's just saying, Well, I lay down my life for sheep, I lay down my life for those who, who choose to believe. But but notice what he says here is not, but you are not among my sheep because you don't believe. It's the other way around. But you, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So even before someone believes or not, there's what's true about them. Are they his sheep or not? Um, Jesus is saying here, you don't believe because you are not one of the ones my father gave me from before the foundation of the world. Or, or, or to put it bluntly, Jesus is saying, look, you're demanding I tell you plainly if I'm the Christ, but you won't listen to me. I already told you, and you won't listen because I'm not your shepherd. I, I wasn't sent here for you. That, that's why you don't recognize my voice. That, that's what he's telling these unbelieving Jews. But then listen to how he positively describes his mission for his sheep in the ensuing verses. So he tells them, you're not of my sheep. And then verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Okay, so again, did did Jesus come to make salvation possible for some nebulous group of people? Or did he come to actually secure the salvation of his sheep? A definite group of people that he knows by name and who were given to him by his father. I think think John 10 makes that clear. You know, and and, and he came for them to, to guarantee their salvation from beginning to end so that no one could ever snatch them out of his hand. Well, then, just just one more passage to look at. Uh, Jump ahead to John chapter 17. Um, And and, and listen here to how Jesus talks about the work his father sent him to accomplish and then how he prays for his people. So picking up in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, so there's that, those whom you have given him, language again. Then jump down in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, And they have kept your word. And then verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Even as we are one now th- th- there's so much here we 're skipping uh, th- th- there's so much even in what we 've read to delve into but uh, but but I, but I just want you to ask again the key question we keep coming back to here right does it sound like Jesus here you know is describing his mission and his purpose and in, in coming to try to make salvation possible for everybody, or does it sound like he came to make salvation certain? For some, that there's specific people that he came to save. I mean, he says here, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. He, he says, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Right? He's come to accomplish salvation for those his father gave to him. And what Jesus is basically doing here is praying for the application of his atoning sacrifice to those it was intended for. Uh, That's why we call this his high priestly prayer. Um, A a priest would would go to the temple and and offer a sacrifice and, and, and make intercession on behalf of the people before God. And Jesus here knows that he's about to go to the cross. He's about to offer himself as the sacrifice. You know, he, he's the priest that, that lays down his own life for his people. And now here he's praying that God would apply all the benefits of that sacrifice and his salvific work to the people. He's laying down his life for. Praying that they would be one. Praying that they would be kept. Praying that ultimately they would be with him and behold his glory. In the presence of the Father, forever. And and the, and the point is, th- th- this shows us why we can't disconnect the work of the atonement from the application. I mean, for for one, as as you know, I, I mentioned earlier. You know, if, if we say, well, well, Jesus comes and he just dies generally, but but then it's the Spirit who comes and and sort of regenerates selectively. Okay, you've you've now created tension or put at odds the work of the son and the work of the spirit and that that's its own struggle but but here it's showing us that you're even adding a division in the work of Christ himself that his priestly work in in offering himself as the atoning sacrifice if if you say well that's sort of general what about his work of interceding what about the people that that Jesus is specifically interceding for and praying for as our great high priest how do you how do you divide that um and and, and so all of this I, I think is is showing us clearly Jesus came to fully secure the salvation of the elect that's what his atoning work was designed to accomplish um and of course, in this just brief time looking through the, the, the Gospel of John, I, I hope you can see that here. Uh, now, there are some difficult passages uh, for the limited atonement view, and I, and I want to look at those next time. Um, I, I also uh, want to address the connection between limited atonement and penal substitution, because I think it's really helpful to see sort of how those are connected as well. Um, but but for tonight, I just wanted to at least offer, you know, wh- where do we see this in the Bible? How do, how do we build a more positive case for limited atonement? Um, and I hope that's been helpful for you. And I want to pause and open up questions about what I've covered so far, just about limited atonement and wh- what we see in, in, in the Gospel of John. And then I want to spend the time we have left talking about a little bit of application. So any, any questions about what we've just covered? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think the crux of it is just to see that there's the, the father who's sort of primary in election. The son comes, the father sends the son into the world who comes to accomplish salvation. Now, of course, there's an outworking of that, which normally, normally theologically you kind of use the word accomplish to talk about what Christ is doing and then application to talk about what the spirit is doing. Um, but but it's, it's the son who comes, and by his atoning work, he, he is fully securing. He, he's, he is accomplishing everything that needs to be accomplished to procure, to guarantee in the sense of earn and um, ensure that the people he's laying down his life for will be saved. And then that is necessarily... Applied, you know, the the Father and the Son then send the Spirit to apply that work of Christ in our life. So it's it's the work of the Spirit that brings us to faith, uh, who regenerates our heart and causes us to then respond with repentance and faith and receive the gospel. Um, so yeah, your question, I mean, it, the the hypothetical, I, I, I think I would just say, well, that's an impossibility, that that those could could truly be divided. Um I mean I way to, the question is why is the work of the spirit necessary if Jesus already died for some people but not others? Why is the work of the spirit necessary to bring those people to faith if Jesus' death for them already guarantees that they're going from faith? Well I, I think it's because it, 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 what what Jesus' death is accomplishing is is it's it's you know we're alienated from God because of sin. you know Jesus is the one who who provides the satisfaction who 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 makes the atonement, who propitiates God against us, which ensures that now that relationship can be restored, and so the Spirit comes to actually kind of bring that to pass. So it's almost like the, the, the debt has been paid, and yes there's 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 an outworking of that in time where we ourselves are actually renewed and transformed. And there's this whole plan of salvation. And clearly, you know, God, for his own glory, is not just saving us in abstraction from our own response of faith. He, he wants us to, to recognize what he's done, glorify him for that, be, you know, inwardly transformed as this gift of salvation is worked out. Um, so So it's not that Christ accomplishes it in the sense of, you know, him dying on the cross, like, um, has already changed us. Clearly, that hasn't happened yet, but but he's paid for it. He's he's ensured that that must happen as a result, which the Spirit is the one who must actually do that in our life. Is that helpful? I, I might need to give more. Or if you have. Yeah, so Justin was pointing out, justification is not eternal. There are some that would want to argue for this view of eternal justification. There's a lot of reasons that's wrong. Um, We don't actually receive justification until we have put place our faith in Christ. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Yeah, I, I, I think that's helpful. I, I think there's also a sense in which you know, it, it's, it's paid, but it's not truly credited to us until there's faith. You know, it's, faith is the moment that this union with Christ is sort of solidified in the sense that now my sin is forgiven and gone and his righteousness is mine. Yeah, I, it, so certainly when we get ahead to inter- irresistible grace, we'll, we'll kind of talk about this more. I mean, I, I don't know how to explain it more than what I was just saying with, yeah, the, the work of the Spirit is, is he is going to apply in the sense of giving us regeneration, those for whom the Son died. question? Yep. did Did you want me to respond more or no. yeah, no that's helpful, yeah. Good. all right, one more, yep. So I, it, I, let me respond to that offline just because there's a lot we'd have to get into, like talking through the whole parable and kind of some more detail. But yeah, good question. Um, in the interest of time, I do want to move ahead and, and kind of conclude by at least landing on some, some clear application. Uh, so there's a lot that we can wrestle with as, as we try to understand this doctrine. But, um, but for today, I just want to close with uh, what I think is one of the, the sweetest applications of this doctrine of limited atonement for us as believers. Uh, I think a lot of times we we jump to thinking, you know, what does this mean for evangelism? What does this mean for the non-elect? But but for today, I just want to focus on what does this mean for you and I as believers in Christ? And, And I want you to think about the way that limited atonement offers assurance and personalizes Christ's work on the cross to you. Think about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just dying for you know, sort of people out there in general. Um, he, he, he was intending to offer himself for a definite group of people, which includes you. Like all well, this talk about those whom the Father gave me from you know, these, these people chosen from the foundation of the world. Like, that's you. You are one of his sheep for whom he laid down his life. Uh, you're known to the shepherd by name. Uh, when Jesus came into the world with the mission of saving each and every one of those his father gave him, that includes you. Uh, that, that, that's why he's a shepherd who was willing, who would be willing to leave the 99 behind to come and find just one, to, to come and find you. To make sure that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. His mission was to come and and raise up every single one of those his father gave him. That not even one would be lost. I mean, think about that. That means when, when you think about him going to the cross. I mean, he would have been willing to go to the cross even if it was only you. I mean, every one of his sheep was his mission to save. His mission wouldn't have been accomplished if even one of his sheep, one of those his father gave him, was lost. And he was willing to go to whatever length, to do whatever it took, to save each and every one of them. He went to the cross for you. Nothing can can come in the way of him saving you. Uh, That's why he prays for you. you. If you look ahead to John 17, 20, he says, you know, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Um, even as Jesus' disciples are right there before him, we too were on his heart. Um, and, and, and this is why when, when you, you think about your salvation and maybe you waver in your faith, you, you wonder, you know, am I going to make it? Well, you can look back to the cross, not, not just as something that made your salvation possible, but but where your salvation was won, where it was fully achieved and accomplished. Um, and, and and know if Christ died for me, I can't be lost. He has already secured my salvation. I mean, what wonderful assurance. I mean, what, what a wonderful way to to see how personal, how how deep God's love for each and every one of us as his elect really is. You know, limited atonement helps us to see that more clearly. So I pray that that will be an encouragement to your soul as you continue to meditate on this, and Lord willing, we will pick this up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to uh, think about Christ and his work on the cross. Lord, I pray that even as we grasp to to understand things that in, in their full depths are beyond our ability to fully comprehend I pray, Lord, that you would grant to us uh, just greater confidence and joy in what we can know about the work of Christ, uh, that we would see your love, that we would see your faithfulness, that we will see your great purpose to save, and that that would encourage us, uh, that that would fill us and, and cause us to live more faithfully now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.